I'll read for the last time Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, it is a fearful thing if we have even the least comprehension of what it is we're doing here, uh, entering into your presence to worship you in, in holy, consecrated assembly. Uh, Lord, I would hate to see what it would look like if we took every one of our wandering thoughts and had to extract them from our good and pure thoughts and line them up together, how our minds would measure up as to what you require. And so we are grateful and thankful that we have a high priest on high who stands and his very presence in your presence is our righteousness. And while it is fearful to enter into your presence, we can enter with joy and with thanksgiving and gladness. And so I pray that these seemingly two ends of the spectrum would join in our hearts, that we would be joyful and glad and celebratory and yet fearful and reverent and, and uh, that we would truly consider our hearts today. It's very easy to come to church and to hear your word and not even consider our hearts, not not take it seriously. It's easy to listen to a sermon and assume that it's written for somebody else or being preached for somebody else or assuming that somebody else needs it more than we do. But I pray, Lord, that you would protect us from this and that you would help each one of us as individuals to make an honest evaluation of ourselves by the help of your Holy Spirit. Lord, only you are the one who search hearts and, and know our hearts truly. And so we need your help. Lord, please come. And show us who we are. Show us what you see. And help us as we seek to live in accordance with what you've commanded. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, imagine with me that in some setting... You have taken Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, and you've walked through it with somebody. I think about these encounters often and how to best begin an evangelistic conversation because that's usually the hardest part, getting started. And I always wish that I was one of those people who could just walk up and just be shamelessly open about the gospel, but I'm, I'm not. I'm fearful. And so I think about creative ways, like you're sitting in the waiting room at the mechanic and you're waiting on your oil to get changed and there's somebody there and you're there and you know that neither one of you are going anywhere. They got to be there. And so you're thinking, well, how, how, could I, how could I just start a conversation? You know there's a Gideon Bible in the drawer or on the the little end table there, and so perhaps you take it out and you flip through it and, 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 and all of a sudden you just start frantically flipping back and forth. Isaiah 28, 16, Romans 9, 33. Isaiah 28, 16, 1 Peter 2, back and forth, back and forth. And then you look at them and you say, have you ever seen this? And they would say, what do you mean? Well, this text here says, I'm the one who's laid as a foundation in Zion, do you know who the foundation is? Have you read this? Peter and Paul both say him. This is a person. And you, and you walk through this text with them. And you're, you're you pretending pretend like you, you just now saw it, even though you've, you've planned this whole thing out. 
And you walk through the text and you show them. Look, there's a foundation. He's Christ. Well, a foundation. He's, he's laid first. Everything else is built upon Him. He upholds everything. He sustains all things. And you just walk through a foundation. It says He's a tested stone. Have you ever read about Christ? I mean, the way that He was tested by, by the devil and by wicked men and by, by holy men throughout history have trusted in Him and how He was tested by our common infirmities. And, and well, He even was laid, laden with the sins of His people. And He even passed that test and was raised from the dead. And well, then it says here, a cornerstone. He's a precious cornerstone. Peter and Paul, a, a chosen and precious cornerstone. He's, he's precious. You just you walk through it with them. Talking about Christ. You're talking about Christ. And they probably think you're crazy. But you just act like you've, you've just come across, upon this great discovery. And then you get done. He's a precious cornerstone. And they say, Okay. Are you finished? H have you completed your task at that point? Notice in our text, after giving this great image of the precious and tested cornerstone of a sure foundation, in my Bible, and I know at least in the, the King James, there's two dots on top of each other after the word foundation. It's called a colon. Now, that was not in the original. But what that does in our English translation is lets us know that we're not finished when we've seen Him. That there's a completed thought. There's more to come. The colon lets you know whatever comes after is going to sum up or finish the thought, finish explaining what's happening. It's an expansion. And so the verse ends, whoever believes will not be in haste. The good news of Jesus Christ in our proclamation, and we get this from God. Notice this is God speaking. Behold, I am the one who has laid. God said this. We get our example from the Lord. Our proclamation and our, our giving Christ to people verbally is not finished just because we've walked through here an elaboration of the person and the work of Christ or, or a gospel explanation uh, focusing primarily on His life and death and resurrection. We're not finished just because we've said that. We then make an appeal. The, the, the sum of the matter is whoever believes will not be in haste. The, the announcement of all of the goodnesses that are in Christ requires something of someone. Every time you hear the gospel from this pulpit or at home or every day that the, the consideration of what Christ has done, every time it enters into your mind, anytime, there is a response that is required. This always requires something of someone. Now by way of exposition, I want to finish out this verse and this little portion of the end of the verse by asking these three questions. Of whom is the requirement made that the, the proclamation of Christ requires something of someone? Of whom is the requirement made? What is the requirement? And then what is the outcome of those who meet this requirement? First question, of whom is the requirement made? Notice the verse says, whoever. Now it literally reads, the, and then we, the, there's a verb, believe. And so we fill in this in, to get it to come across clear to us in English. And we could say, the one believing, or the ones believing, or as our, our says, whoever believes. We know that there's a verb here. A verb is an action performed by somebody in time. So that's where we come up with this word, who, that's a person, ever, that regards time. So whoever completes this action at some point in time. That's why we have the words whoever, whosoever, because it lets us know that we're, just, we're, we're, we're focusing on an individual who's doing something. Of whom is this requirement made? Whoever. And in that word whoever, we have the full scope of the offer that's being made. 
This scope is exhaustive. Anyone who will meet this requirement has met the requirement. From the perspective of God here in this passage and from our perspective as we explain the gospel or preach the gospel in any setting, whoever the messenger might be, at any given moment in time as we describe the excellencies of Christ, as we proclaim the gospel of Christ, the call as we elaborate upon the response, the call is universal. Every time. There is nothing in any biblical theology that would ever limit the call to anyone or exclude anyone. And anyone who thinks that their theology won't let them say to somebody, if you will believe, you will be saved. They have an unbiblical theology. The call is always absolutely universal. Nobody is outside of the pale of this call. The call excludes no one. God excludes no one. The messenger excludes no one. The only way that a person can be found outside of this call is to exclude themselves by not complying with the requirement. That's the only way. That goes for you, Today and every Lord's Day, every time the gospel goes forward, the only way that you can sit in your seat and think, well, he's not talking about me. Well, that doesn't really apply to me. The only way that is true is because you have determined you don't want it. You've rejected it. It's not the preacher. It's not the message. Nothing in the call excludes anyone. This call says whoever, that is universal, anybody at any time, at any place who satisfies the requirement has met the requirement. So of whom is the requirement made? Whoever. Second question, what is the requirement? Notice it says whoever believes. And that word the idea of believing is synonymous with what we call faith. We're going to be talking about faith all day today. The same word was used of Abraham when it says that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Same word. Same word was used of the Ninevites when it says the people of Nineveh believed God and they repented and the wrath of God was abated. This is faith. Faith is the instrument by which men, I'm going to teach you a new old word, by which men betake themselves unto Christ. The word betake means, is just an old word for commit or, or hand themselves over to Christ. I like the word betake because I picture me grabbing myself by the collar and carrying myself to Christ and plopping myself down at His feet and saying, here I am. I've got nowhere else to go. I betake myself to Him. That's what faith is. You must believe. That's the requirement. The soul must go out to Christ in full, confident conviction that He can and will save. That He alone can and will save. And anyone, at any time, in any place, who will believe savingly upon Jesus Christ will have met the requirement. Believe. Anybody. Question number three. What will be the outcome of those who meet the requirement? Notice the text. It says they will not be in haste. Now, to help us understand this, let's go back to the original context. What's happening? Assyria is threatening to attack. The people are afraid and they are tempted to flee to Egypt for refuge. So imagine you've you got your family there and you've just heard over the waves of the radio that a foreign army is about to attack and that everybody needs to seek shelter. And so you're, you're, you're running frantically around the house. Kids, grab some shoes and some socks. Qu quick, we got everybody scurrying around trying to get the, some things together so that they can leave. You're hastily trying to seek refuge. What God is saying is if you will simply put your trust 
in the precious cornerstone that I have provided, you'll have no need to run, no need to flee, no felt sense of desperation to get away quickly or to seek refuge anywhere because God Himself is the protector. That's what He's saying. Now we view this through the lens of its fulfillment in Christ. And what's being described here is the condition of all of those who have savingly believed or entrusted themselves, betaken themselves unto Christ. Whether this is in initial saving faith, where you have been confronted with your standing before God as a sinner and judgment is threatened but Christ has been presented and your heart goes out to Him in saving faith at first faith or whether this is the day-to-day Christian walk where you're battling against sin, perhaps you're undergoing affliction or persecution or, or tribulation on account of the Word throughout the Christian life, anyone who has trusted in Christ will never need to run and cower in fear. Now, sometimes we do, but we don't need to. As it says in Hebrews, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's that's the believing ones. Taking into consideration, again, the way Paul uses this, he, he quotes from the Greek translation, but he says, whoever believes in Him... Christ, will not be put to shame. And this is, has interested me. What, how do haste and shame go together? And so my mind goes back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Imagine in the moment that they sin, they realize their nakedness. And the Scriptures say that they sewed leaves together and covered themselves. Now, when you read that, do you picture... The scene going like this. Huh. Well, babe, guess we're to guess we're to get some leaves or something. Have you maybe maybe cover ourselves up or I don't know. I mean, what do you think? That's not how we, we read it. We we know. They saw and they acted just like we would if somebody came in on us when we were undressed, scurrying around in fear. It says later on, they heard God walking in the garden. And they hid themselves. Now again, when you read that, do you think that Adam said, Yeah, that sounds like God. Huh. What do you think we ought to do? She says, Well, I don't know. What do you think we ought to do? He says, Well, I think we could hide over there. And she says, Well, no, I don't want to hide over there again. Maybe we could hide over there. No, they, they fled. They were hastily seeking to cover their shame. That's the idea. The sinner who's not trusted in Christ, who has even the slightest comprehension of sin, and I hope you understand that unregenerate people have a comprehension of sin. And they realize, and there are moments when they feel great conviction for their sin, but those who are have, have not entrusted themselves to Christ, are always going to be hastily working to cover up their sins. Always. Their life is very often just running around trying to cover themselves. And it might be you making excuses for why you continue in sin. Now as good Christian people, very often our excuses come out very holy very pious, very, very spiritual. Well, I, I have to continue doing this, even though I, I, I really don't like to keep doing this, but I have to keep doing this because, well, if I don't, then, then I'll have to commit a worse sin. So I'm just choosing the lesser of two evils. Well, you know good and well that following the Lord never requires anyone to sin, but we make excuses to try to cover up our sin. Again, taking the name of the Lord God in vain so that we can continue sinning against that same God, or try to compensate for sins by other good deeds. Well, I, I sin there, Lord, I'll just do this. Or I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do what you've required of me there, Lord, but I'll, I'll do this and I'll make sure I work extra hard over here to make up for it. Trying to cover up sins. Or perhaps it's just in your thoughts. And this is 
probably what it looks like most often for us in our thoughts, constantly trying to justify ourselves and our actions. It's going to be okay. It's okay. I have to do this. I, I, I know other people who've done this. This is normal. This is common. I mean, this is what we have to do. And, and though other people might not really understand it, they don't know my heart and they don't know how I'm trying to be godly, but really I'm going to have to keep doing this. And, and so we're just continually making excuses or... Perhaps you busy yourself, keep yourself so busy that God is not in your thoughts because you know that as soon as thoughts of God come into the mind, there is the pressing shame because you know that His piercing eye sees every thought, hears every motivation, all of it, and so you just put that out of your mind. And this is what the unregenerate person does, and very often as Christians we find ourselves doing this, but those who have not entrusted themselves to Christ, this is their life. A constant scurrying around. Their daily routine, a part of their daily routine, is scurrying around trying to gather leaves so that when the time comes, they can start sewing them together to cover themselves up. But the one who's truly trusted in Jesus has no need to do that at all. None. The one who's trusted in Jesus will not be in haste, and you will not be put to shame. Very often we might think, I've put on a Christian mask for a long time. And every time the gospel is put forth, I know that I'm not a Christian, but everybody else thinks I'm a Christian. And if I, if I come out and say, you know what, I wasn't a Christian, I'm going to be embarrassed. It'll be embarrassing to me. No, it won't. For those who come to Christ, there is no shame. None will be put to shame. As a matter of fact, for the faithful, it will be the opposite. At the, in the end, at the last day, we will be vindicated. It will be the wicked who are put to shame. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Now we could extrapolate several different things from this text. First, the way is open to any and all who would come to Christ in faith. Anybody. And we can preach that. Anytime, anywhere, we can look anybody in the eye on the face of the planet and say, if you will believe, you will not be in haste. You will not be put to shame. There will be no embarrassment and you will be saved. Anybody. The promise here is made that for any who do come to Christ will have no reason to be anxious in their soul. Those who come to Christ will find true, enduring peace in Him. Again, this is for anybody. Now, in a room like this, I think and I hope that everything that I've just said is pretty much commonly understood. I think most of us, even down to our children who can articulate thoughts, would profess faith in Christ. But we also know that our hearts are deceitful above all else and desperately wicked, right? So we think of politicians and we think, Man, those people are crooked. We think of used car salesmen, and we think, man, those people are crooked. They've got nothing on your heart. Your heart is deceitful above all else. Nothing is as deceitful as the heart. And so we ask ourselves, who can know the human heart? I mean, I know a little bit of myself. I know my tendency to sin. How can I trust my heart and with regard to the concept of saving faith, very often you might wonder, is what I'm experiencing in my heart and in my mind, is, is what's going on here, is that really what the Christians call faith? Is that really what the Bible's teaching? I mean, I, I think it's faith, but how can I know if I can't trust my heart? Perhaps I'm deceived. Surely we can all agree that there are some people who think that they have a so-called faith, and we know it's not saving faith. We, we, we can spot that a mile away. That's not what this is. So we know that there are these so-called false faiths. Again, when we think of our children, we, we hopefully they're hearing the gospel. They're hearing the, the necessity of faith. We're telling them often, you must trust in Christ if you are to be saved. And so you ask them then, do you 
trust Christ? Are you believing in Christ? And they'll say, yeah. Or even you don't even have to ask. They'll just raise their hand. I trust in Jesus. You explain the options. Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Reject Christ. The only other option is the lake of fire. You set that before children. Which are they going to pick? I trust. I believe. Over and over. And as parents we say, well that's good. Just keep doing that. You're, you're not completely convinced at three years old that they know exactly what they're saying when they say, I trust Christ. For many people, the idea of faith, I heard this phrase this week, is, is a stubborn optimism. Regardless of what's happening, regardless of truth, regardless of reality, regardless of what the Bible says compared to their lives, they're optimistic and that's their faith. You can't point out anything to them because they're going to be stubbornly optimistic. That's what they think faith is. So we, have, we agree that there are some, some fake faiths or false faiths. And so what I want to do is take the rest of the time, use the outline of this text, and just examine our faith. And ask, is my faith real faith? Am I, am I faithing the way I ought to faith? Our confession we saw uh, two Lord's Days ago said that faith is receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness. Well, it's simple enough, right? Receiving, resting on Christ. But then we think, okay, receiving. But it's not like I see the UPS truck stop in front of my house and I open the door and thank you. It's not a physical thing. I'm not taking anything physical. So what does it mean to receive? The Bible talks about receiving. To those who did receive Him... To them gave He the right to become the children of God. That there is a receiving of Christ. It's resting on Christ. But again, this is not a physical resting. We're not reclining on the breast of Christ like John did. So what is it to rest? What is this receiving? What is this saving faith? And how can we know that what's happening in us is the real thing? So we talked about the foundation. A true saving faith builds on the foundation, which is Christ, because it's in the heart. It, the saving faith is convinced that Christ is capable to uphold and sustain you. He's capable to save. I can build on that, you say. And so you, you build on Christ. In our hearts and in our minds and throughout our lives, we're always building. We're always constructing, whether we realize it or not. In our hearts, we are either constructing idols or we are developing our affections for Christ all the time. Unless you're asleep, you're, you're, you're building something. Like Calvin said, the, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. As believers, hopefully, there's, a, there's another uh, pr production line in the heart as well that's also turning our affections to Christ. But we're always constructing something. In our minds, we are always developing thoughts and ways of thinking all the time. We are either taking thoughts captive to obey Christ or we are laying the groundwork and training our minds for laziness, teaching ourselves how to not think, destroying our ability to focus and think intently on Christ. We're always doing one or the other. In our Lives as we live, we're always establishing patterns and habits all the time. Those patterns are either bringing us closer to Christ or they are drawing us away from Him. There's no neutrality. We're always constructing, always doing, always thinking, always acting. And just as we are always in some form active, faith, true saving faith, is always active along with us and in us. Read Hebrews 11. By faith, so-and-so, and then there's an action. By faith, so-and-so, and here's what they did. Over and over, they're acting according to their faith. Galatians 5, 6 says, Faith working through love. Faith works. It's always active. True saving faith is a receiving and a resting on Christ and His righteousness for our standing before God, but the receiving of that Christ and that righteousness, that, that Christ that we receive, He's not a lazy, negligent Christ. 
when it comes to sanctification. You get Him, He starts working. Saving faith begins in the heart and it builds on Christ. And so that's what we saw several weeks ago. The way of faith is a, a way of life that is one of simple obedience to Christ. We make life hard on ourselves. The life that Christ gives us is a simple way. It's just walking with the Lord. A simple life of obedience. There are areas in our lives where we constantly struggle and we're, we're just racking our brains. How can I make this work? How can I make this work? And more than likely what you're doing is trying to juggle something sinful over here while also trying to be godly over here and that's never going to work. It's constant struggle. But the way of saving faith is a way of simple obedience to Christ. The, the way of faith has a worldview that's shaped according to Christ. And again, it's plain and simple. We make it confusing when we try to straddle the fence. I see this on Facebook all the time. People in these groups asking questions. Well, what do you think about this? And I think the, that, that is the, that's a softball. Why is anybody confused on how that works? But then the comment section fills up. Everybody's got an opinion. And nobody can figure it out. And I'm thinking... The scriptures are clear. It's so simple. But because we want to juggle, we make it confusing. But the way of faith is a worldview simply shaped according to Christ and His Word. A heart attitude in our service is patterned after that of Christ. Our studying of the scriptures and our prayer is a seeking after God and Christ. That was all several weeks ago. We're just building on Christ. And in that too, we make it difficult. We... we Struggle in family worship. Well, I'm just having, having a really hard time just understanding how to just get to Christ. Talk about Christ. How, how, find the text. Read it. If it says king, speaks of somebody's name, that person's not Christ, here's the real Christ. It's that simple. Especially with your children. But we make it difficult because we, we, that's just what our hearts do. We distort and contort everything. But the way of faith is a simple, plain, building and patterning everything upon Christ. But this building on the foundation, let's go back to our construction project. We're, we're already several pages into the blueprints if we're building on the foundation. Because if we're building on the foundation, that means the foundation's already been laid. And if the foundation's already been laid, that means the cornerstone's already been set. And if the cornerstone's been set, that means it's already been chosen and selected out of a mass of other stones. And so we have to trace back a little bit. Why? Well, how often do you wonder? And hopefully this is a part of your regular examination. But how often do you wonder if you're building in those areas... and it's all of life. But how often do you wonder if in your building, you're building simply out of cultural acceptability? You just stop, just stop and think. I'm, I'm carrying out a fairly consistent uh, Christian or what some people would call a Judeo-Christian ethic. Why? Why are you doing that? Well, it's culturally acceptable where we live. There are places in the world our, our lifestyle wouldn't work. But we don't have, we're not in one of those. Do you ever wonder if what you think is faith and your building is really just what you've also seen in others? It's just a servile fear trying to earn salvation. You're doing it. You're, you're carrying out these things. But you ever stop and wonder if maybe I'm just doing that because I don't want to go to hell when I die. So, so we have to step back. Maybe I'm living like a Christian just because that's the way I was raised. Maybe I have a Christian worldview because I've never known another worldview. And if I was born in a Muslim country, I'd, be, I'd have a Muslim worldview. How do I know that that's not the case? What if I'm a good servant of others because, well, my daddy told me to work hard and to serve? What if I study the Scriptures merely out of routine and I say, but wait, I'm seeking after Christ in the Scriptures. But you always love a good challenge. It's not because you actually enjoy Christ. It's because that's just, you know, you, you, you like the little games at Cracker Barrel. You just like a good challenge. 
How do you know that your building is an act of true saving faith? So we talked about Christ as the tested stone. He's been tested. He's been found worthy and dependable. So true saving faith will receive and rest upon Christ as the tested stone and will also seek to prove Him yourself. True faith is not satisfied simply with somebody else giving a good testimony. True faith always acts and it's always aspiring to prove Christ. So we receive Christ as tested. True and saving faith will come to the text of Scripture and receive that testimony. He was tested by the devil. I believe it. He was tested by wicked men and he passed every one of them. I believe it. Faithful men throughout the centuries, according to the Scriptures, have cast themselves upon Christ. I believe it. He was laden with our common infirmities, and he bore them, and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was holy and blameless and undefiled. I believe it. He walked as our substitute and bore that into the ocean of God's wrath, and he endured it. I believe it. True faith sees it from the text, believes it, but also sees that proven character as corresponding to all of my weaknesses and my needs. So it's not just there's a great man, it's there's the great one who is great in all of the areas where I'm not great. Saving faith recognizes that in all of these areas where Christ was tested and proven, I, the sinner, have failed. In all of these areas, Christ's fullness is meat suitable to my weaknesses. And that especially when it came to Him living in our common infir infirmities and bearing our sufferings as our substitute, true saving faith comes to the Scriptures, reads the testimony and the account of Christ, turns back to themselves one last time and says, Yes, that Christ, that's the one I, I want. I'll take Him. One of those, please. One Jesus for me. Because everything that He's done is satisfactory for everything that I need. I'll take Him as mine. Everywhere I've been proven weak, He's been proven strong. I'll have one of those. That's, that's saving faith. But then that same saving faith, once it has Christ, desires to prove Him over and over like we sang. That song is not, a, it's not a, 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 an obligatory, well, how I've had to prove Him, or and or. No, it's a celebration. I've proved Him, or and or. I love proving Him. It's like watching a, an infomercial, and you're, you're, you're just tantalized by the product. You've got to have it so that when you get it, you can do what they did. And you're going to call your friends and say, hey, come watch this. I'm going to do what he did. Look, it, look, it does exactly what they did. You want to show it off. You want to prove that it does exactly what it says it would do. And that's what saving faith does with Christ. It sees Christ's proven faithfulness. It takes hold of that Christ for yourself. And then it takes great pleasure throughout life proving Him, proving that He really is who the Scriptures say that He is. Not out of evil intent. Not because you want to find the, the, the weak spot, the soft spot, but because you want to show everybody there is no weak spot. You want to discover for yourself there is no soft spot in this Christ. So we come to His orthodoxy. We see Him tested according to His orthodoxy. He passes the test. And so you take this Christ and you say, I'll take Christ's position on that doctrine. They test his eschatology. And we say, I'll take Christ's position on that one, at least with regard to the resurrection of the dead and elsewhere. But he clarifies the resurrection of the dead. I'll take his position. He's tested according to his jurisprudence, his knowledge of the law. I'll take Christ's position on the law. He delighted in the law. I'll delight in the law. It didn't bother him to obey the law. I'll obey the law too. Well, and, and people wonder, well, what about this? And what about this? What about this? Yeah, what about it? We'll see. It's going to be great. I'm going to prove it. I'm going to prove that what he did and what he lived out is actually satisfactory and, and a delight. We see his piety. They tested his piety. And we say, well, let's try it. I'm going to live like Christ before men. 
Worst case scenario, you're tied to the stake and they're lighting the flames. And you can say, hey, I tested him. Look, they're doing to me the same thing they did to him. It works. It works every time. Because you've proven him. And the, the true saving faith delights in that. Now, and again, how is it that you test all of these things except by throughout in your life building upon Christ, constructing a wall, and then step back and watch it. You say, huh, it stayed. Okay, build another one. You build another wall and you step back. It stayed. Okay, build another And you just keep, you build and you test. And you build and you test. And you're constantly testing and proving that's the Christian life. And it's not this, it's not a shaky, nervous testing well, I, I really hope this works. I'm not really sure this is going to work. No, you're, you're convinced. It's going to work. It's a joyful, delightful testing. Wanting to show Christ and His faithfulness to yourself and to others. But then again, we could ask, is simply living out these outward external acts, is that all that saving faith is? Is it just the outward it, it seems like we're kind of back to building on the foundation. We're building and we're testing. We're building and we're testing. We keep returning to these byproducts of faith. Build something and test it. Build it and test it. Faith working. Faith building. And we ask, is there not a step prior to any testing, prior to any building on this foundation that I can go back to, I can trace down to the root and really ask, how do I know that what I'm doing is out of true saving faith? And that leads to what I, what I believe is the root of saving faith where we left off last week. Jesus Christ is the precious cornerstone. He's precious because He's priceless and He's cherished. And the question is, do you see Him that way? Do you see Him as priceless? Is He precious to you? How do you know that all of your testing and building is not because Christianity is precious to you? Or because heaven is precious to you? Or because outward conformity to a religious system is precious to you? Or acceptance by men or affirmation by others in my family? How do, how do you know that all, in all of your building it's not because those things are precious rather than Christ is precious. I believe this is the heart of the matter. This is where saving faith begins. Saving faith will build on Christ. That's action. Saving faith will see Christ as proven and will desire to prove Him. That's an act of the will. I want to do that. But what is it that is going to take the, the, the will and incline it to want to do that? Kind of, kind of tilt you up on your edge to where you have to, you have to do it. I have to have him. I have to prove him. What is it? And I think it's a heart full of Christ. It's a soul that has seen Jesus Christ as truly precious. And when you get that sight of Christ as precious, you are tilted up on edge, and all you can do is go after him and prove him. You're, you're, you're inclined to it. Again, the fear is that you can appear to be building on Christ outwardly. But if Christ is not precious, it doesn't matter what you're doing outwardly. If you're not doing it because you have found Him to be precious, it is not saving faith. True saving faith, in its, especially in its first motions, is an act of the heart and the mind. In an instant, the, the, in, the first moment of saving faith... You're not doing anything. You're not acting outwardly. The mind takes in the truths concerning Christ. The heart is, is turned to see Him as altogether lovely. And the will is determined after Him. I have to have Him. I'm not going to stop until I have the one whom my soul loves. Faith works through love, and that love is first and foremost and preeminently love to Christ. That's where it starts. So then the question is, again, is Jesus Christ precious to you? Is He indispensable to you? 
If he is, you're going to chase down the lines of his proven worth in Scripture and you're going to delight in it. If Christ is precious to you, it will take very little exhortation to get you to follow him. Now, this is a fearful thing because you wonder, why are there so many people who profess to be Christians who have to constantly be kicked in the seat of their pants to get to them to do anything? Why? If Christ is precious, you're tilted up after Him. Just one little nudge and you're snowballing. Why is it that people have to get behind you and constantly push and push and push except that you've not seen Christ as precious? If the Lord Jesus Christ is precious, it's not going to take sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon to get you to start building upon Him. That's just the natural byproduct of seeing Him as precious. Again, as I said last week, if you see another person like your spouse or like your children as precious, you have real affections for them, you have a desire for them to be near you and you want to be near them, you want to show them that they are precious to you, you'd never want to do anything that pushes them away or offends them. And that's how it is with Christ. The difference is, Christ is not here physically with us. So it is the manifestation of Christ by His Spirit through the means that He has given for that purpose that brings Him near to us and we near to Him. The, the means of grace embarked upon by faith that brings Christ near and brings us to Him. So it's not like your children where you can say, hey, come here, because Christ hasn't ordained a means of grace that says, hey, Christ... Come here. That's not one of them. But what are they? They're, there's the Word. There's prayer. There's gathering in the assembly. The sacraments. There's singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The things that Christ has given to us. These are the ways that we reach out after Him. And so we could ask, just in a general way, in these things that hopefully we're all engaged in on a regular basis... Hopefully it's not because, well, I know the pastor is going to ask me in a few weeks if I've been doing it, so I guess I better do it. But when you engage in these things, is your heart going after Christ in them? To know Him, to fellowship with Him, to commune with Him, to receive grace from Him, or do these activities terminate short of Christ? Are you satisfied with just reading the Scriptures? Get up in the morning, read a chapter, close it, go about my day. Is that satisfactory? Or must you read until you've found Christ and He's found you and you're communing together? And if that doesn't happen, you're not satisfied. And I'm not going to say that that intimate communion is going to happen every time, which might mean you go about your day dissatisfied and unhappy and unpleased. But there are many people who don't have that close communion, and they're fine. Life is fine because they don't need it. Are you satisfied with closing your eyes, repeating some words, the same words you repeat every time you pray? Or do you feel obligated to pray until you know you've gained God's ear in Christ and He is inclined and hearing? Again, not to say you're going to feel that every time. And so you might get up and say, Lord, I'll try again tomorrow. Are you satisfied with bread and juice? Or do you by faith at least long to be given some measure of grace as you bring Christ near in your thoughts? Does it do something in your heart to think of a bleeding Christ on the cross? Or are you satisfied to just drink and chew? Are you satisfied with being around Christians because you share common interests with them? Or is your delight to be around Christians because you know that you're around God's people and that there's something God has put into them, Christ's Spirit in them, and that is feeding you? In my preparation this morning, I didn't get very far through my preparation and I was singing and, and things just getting ready for the day. And I, I was just, I could not wait for everybody to get here. This is how I get, I'm just walking around, you know, straightening things up, just excited for the congregation to be here because I want to be with God's people. 
But I ha even I have to examine. Is that just because, well, y'all are the only friends I have? Or is it really because these are the people in whom Christ's Spirit dwells? And they don't have to say anything. Just, just smiling. And I know that's a believer. There's, there's something in them that I share with them. Are you satisfied with singing Christian songs? Or do you long to have the truths of Christ well up inside you and move you to love Him more? If emotions are good. Christ, Christ uses emotions. We don't have to be afraid of that. See, the danger is in all these outward things, all of these external acts. Anybody in this room right now who's living under a false profession can conjure up in your mind a substitute feeling and convince yourself that you're cherishing Christ when really the bare kernel of all of these things will satisfy you just fine. Life is fine and dandy regardless of whether I've met Christ or not met with Christ. Everything just seems to be, well, typical. You know, it's normal. And so we have to be a little more specific. So I want to get a little more specific now. Again, the question is, how do I know that my faith is saving faith? The root of that being saving faith starts with cherishing Christ. How do I know if I cherish Christ? Well, do you prefer time spent with Christ over other things that you could be doing? Again, it would be very easy for us to say, yeah. And then also constantly make excuses as to why your schedule doesn't allow you to make time for Christ. If you prefer time spent with Christ over other things, are you making any attempt at all to reschedule so that you can prioritize Christ? God has not given anyone a lifestyle that requires them to exclude Him. Nobody. If that's your condition, you pick that lifestyle. That's your fault. And so if you really cherish Christ, you'll be making an attempt to reschedule. You're going to be moving things because you cherish the time. Just like we do with our children. We cherish the time. We make the time. It's the same with Christ except again through the means that He's given. Do you notice a consistent and growing discontentment with anything short of Christ? Can you see that? The Christian life, and a lot of people confuse what it means to grow spiritually. I think it just means to, to learn more facts and to, to learn more doctrines. One aspect of growing as a Christian is becoming increasingly more discontent with any, everything below the clouds. It's, it's just, it's, you, and you realize it. You're seeing it. It's, again, even regular times of communion that have to stop and you're not satisfied. Lord, I long for glory when I don't have to go to the bathroom anymore. Are you growing in your discontentment with the things of the world? We often think of the things of the world as pagan things, godless things, you know, like cigarettes and things like that. Paul said that a man, a married man, will be anxious for the things of the world, how to please his wife. And a married woman will be anxious for the things of the world, how to please her husband. See, worldly things are not just things that are inherently sinful. They're, it's anything below the, 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 the clouds, below the sun, that takes our attention away from Christ. And a true Christian who truly cherishes Christ will be constantly growing in their discontentment with everything short of Christ. And this is why when you read of aged saints on their deathbed, they're ready to go. Very often we can't conceive of that. Young families with young children, we cannot imagine leaving our families in the world. 
But saints who've walked with the Lord for a long time, they're ready. Take them. The Lord will take care of them. I've got places to be. They're ready to go because they have increasingly grown more and more discontent with everything under the sun, everything in the world, because they cherish Christ more and more and more. Another question, do you have a real joy when you're praying? Now, that, we could just stop there. Do you have a joy in prayer? But additionally, knowing that God hears your prayers in Christ... You see the difference. There are a lot of people who love to, to call out real quickly in prayer because they think God is their bellboy. And so they're, they're quick to pray, quick to pray, quick to pray. They never stop to actually take into consideration that it is only because of the intercession of Christ that I am to pray and can pray. The true believer who cherishes Christ enters into prayer delighted that their high priest is making intercession. That's what allows them and brings them into prayer. And so that gives them a joy not just an ear to hear, but an ear in Christ. Prayers answered in Christ. Knowing, I'm asking for what I believe to be your will, Lord. But I, I am delighted to know that if I'm wrong, you're going to answer according to Christ, according to your will, and that's going to be perfect. Because He's making intercession. You have a real joy in praying. Do you ever... Get the urge to just stop whatever you're doing and go talk to Christ. That's how we are with our spouses, with our children, because they're precious to us. We just want to be with them. There's sometimes I'm working and I can't hardly work. I just want to be with my family. I just want to see them, just want to hug them, just want to touch them. It ought to be the same with Christ. We're going about our day and we don't have anything to ask for. I don't have any requests. I don't have, I'm not dying of anything. I just think, man, I need, to, I need to speak with my Lord for a minute and just talk. Those who cherish Christ will have that. Are you protective of your heart? Always guarding against anything that would impede upon your communion with Christ. Always guarding against anything that would tempt you to sin. Always guarding against everything that could possibly crowd out your mind with thoughts other than the things of Christ. Remember, the cares of the world are one of the things that can choke the Word. But someone who's grown, and, and, and a lot of these things are not things that we come to just like this. But over time, you're going re to recognize, I did that last week, and, I, and it, it robbed me. I'm not doing it again. I went there last week and it robbed me. I'm not doing it again. And you grow, you begin to make this, this category list of, of things. I know these things are robbing my mind. And so then I try to come to meet with Christ in His Word, and I've already been robbed of everything. And so if you really cherish meeting with Christ in the means of grace, you're going to be guarding against those things, watching out for the things that are crowding out your heart and your mind with things other than Christ. How do you know if there are things crowding out your mind and your heart? Check your Facebook. We like to kind of joke around Facebook. That's not real life. You know, and it's not when it comes to socializing. But you've got to think there's something that goes into the process of an event or an experience and your mind saying, I would like for the entire world to know that I have found this interesting. That I would like for everybody, at least on my friends list, I would like for everybody to associate this thing with me. That, that's what's happening when we're, you're posting stuff. I think, I think through this stuff. It's so strange that we do this. But that's what's coming out. The things that are in your heart are coming out. It's either verbally and now we're, we're in this age where it's coming out here. Look. Make a list. Here are the things that I cherish, that I prize right here. The things that I'm showing to the world every day, associate me with this, associate me with this, associate me with this, and put this down too, and put me down for three of these. This is, this is the world that we live in. And we, can, we like to deny that and act like it's not true, but it really it is, because that's the way our minds work. Are you regularly studying to count... All things as rubbish compared to Christ. Now this sounds cynical. This is what Paul did. 
it sounds cynical, but just look for stuff. Just look for it. Look for things. I, I like that right there, but I know good and well I'm not going to like it in two weeks. Things that you have enjoyed, uh, something you've had for a long time. Think about it. I remember when I had to have that. I don't have to have it anymore. It's grown old. It's grown boring. I, I remember when I had to have this, whatever it is, just look around at your life, the things that we even prize the most, and just think, these things are not forever. Our spouses, our children, these things are not going to be forever. Just study to know these things compared to Christ, they're rubbish. Only Christ is eternal. And again, that sounds cynical, but I think it helps to, to increase our love and our prizing of the one thing who will never grow old. Do you see the loss of earthly things as gain as they push you to Christ? This is what Paul did. As he lost things, it was gain to him because it helped him see more and more and more I must have Christ. Even physical things, physical health, physical safety, shelter, clothing, whatever it might be, losing these things. You look throughout the history of the church and you see saints who've lost countless children, friends. A lot of the guys that we read have lost children up, up into the double digits. And we wonder, how are these men so holy? How can they write this way? It's because God has taken everything from them and said, only Christ, only Christ. And they can write about it. We don't want to lose anything. So we'll never write like they write. We'll never speak like they spoke. We'll never think like they think. Because we don't want to lose anything. But if you're able to see the loss of things as gain because it pushes you to Christ, it's because you cherish Him. Do you see your weaknesses as strengths in as much as they push you to Christ? That's what Paul did. A lot of times we can say, well, you know, I'm, I know this is for my good. That's not what I'm saying. He counted it as a strength. He prized, he boasted in his weaknesses because he had to say, all of the glory belongs to Christ. Is the present reality of Christ's kingdom a priority for you? If Christ is precious to you, then His kingdom is precious to you. And the things that are in accord with the advance of His kingdom, those are the things that are going to be precious. Men, when you get home from work and you go into your house, is it Christ's kingdom or your kingdom that is most precious? Before you lay down and go to bed, is it your kingdom or Christ's kingdom that is most precious? Do you ever just stop and wonder at Christ who is true God and true man and all, of that, all that that implies? Just think. God-man. That's amazing. I love it. You hunger and thirst to know more of Christ. Another one that I think is very telling. Do you recognize and feel a distance from Christ in your heart? And, and, and if and when you do, does it make you sad? That's very telling, if you notice it or not. And I've, I've told you guys, whenever I'm asking about your spiritual condition, and you can say, and I feel like I'm, I'm rotten. I mean, I feel I'm in the bottom of the barrel. It's awful. Everything is awful right now. I say, praise the Lord. It'll get better. If you didn't feel anything, then I would be afraid. But the true believer who cherishes Christ, they feel when He's distant. They know it. It, it makes them mourn. Now, perhaps you're here... And everything I've just described is completely foreign. You've never felt any of those things. You need to be saved today. God has given His Son to be received and cherished by faith. And if you will just come to Him in faith, you'll see Him as precious like others in the room have, and you'll not be put to shame. There's no embarrassment in coming to Christ. The other side of that is you hear all of this. And all you can do is sit and curse your weak and pitiful heart because you fear the condition of your soul because you know good and well that you have not cherished Christ as He ought to be cherished. 
You know that you've not thought of Him like you ought to think of Him. You know you've not prized Him as He ought to be prized. And so you, you, you might be disconsolate in that condition. Here's encouragement. An unregenerate person doesn't see any preciousness in Christ. A believer will be able to see it. And even if they have to curse their own hearts because they're not cherishing as they ought, at least they see something praiseworthy in Him. They prize something. That shows you've been given a glimpse of Christ. Now take that and go forward. Cherish Him more. Prize Him more. Be encouraged. It's very easy when we think of and, and read of men when they write about their walk with the Lord and we, we just, just seeing their language, their prose as they describe Christ and we think, I, I don't know what it's like to have an, an emotion like that for anything, let alone Christ, but of all things, Christ ought to be the, the one worthy to be cherished. And we think, well, I'm worthless. I can't write like them. I can't think like them. I can't speak like them. I can't, I can't wax eloquent like these men of old did. I must not have it. Take heart. If you see something in Christ that makes you wish you could, that's good. That, that's, that's a good sign. Let's pray.